Well, for those of, who, of you who have been, were not here last week uh, in the morning service, this is the second part of a sermon uh, entitled Remembering God's Mercy. Very much that's the goal of uh, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit in this passage to cause the Ephesian believers and us, because the Word of God comes to us today, to remember God's mercy. And last week... Uh, we left it off in verse 16, but we focused very much on the mercy of God in bringing a people together. And perhaps the best way to look at it is to look at verse 18 of today's passage. It is a wonderful, a beautiful summary of last week's sermon, or last week's theme. For through him, that is, through Christ the Son, we both, that is, the, the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul was, is referring to, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It is through the shed blood of Christ, as we saw last week, that we have been reconciled to God. But not only that, we are reconciled to one another and brought together in Christ. As Paul says, the middle wall of separation that existed between Jews and Gentiles is broken down, is torn down. It is through him that we have access to the Father, which tells us that there is only one way of access, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said this time and time again through his ministry. The exclusivity of the gospel is that it's, it is only through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because there is only one sin-atoning Savior, there can only be one way of access to the Father. And the gospel of God seeks, or the gospel of God, not seeks, the gospel of God not only gives us access to God the Father, but it also uh, tears down the divisions between people that exist in our world. Paul, with, uh, in writing to the Galatians, years before he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he told them, for as many of you as, are as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the, the, the summary of last week's message is very much that, that before the cross of Jesus Christ, there is uh, no uh, human division. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, all racial, cultural, historical, national, uh, financial, social uh, divisions that existed are now torn down. And as we saw last week, it is in the church and it is through because of the gospel that even the most... Uh, vehement of enemies now have peace with one another i seem to remember um, vaguely a brother uh, a pastor a nigerian pastor a uh, friend of mine uh, mentioning how much joy he had brought him to him um, when he went to this one church where there were a, a significant amount of nigerian christians the joy it brought to him to see many different tribes of Nigerian that would otherwise, in their home country, not be able to stand being in the presence of one another. But because of Christ, they were there worshiping together. Because of what Christ has done, that reconciliation. So in, in fact, in the church, there is no uh, 
Well, we don't stop being Nigerian, we don't stop being English, Irish, uh, Portuguese, Chinese, whatever nationality you are, you don't stop being that. But those enmities that existed are no longer there. In fact, you don't stop being that because God himself receives praise for, for, for those things. God is praised in heaven because he has brought together a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So the nation element is still very much present, but it no longer defines us. The same thing with our ethnicity, with our skin color, whether you're uh, black or white. You, you don't stop being that, but those things no longer define us, uh, no longer uh, divide us. They, we are brought together. Same thing with gender, male or female. There is no longer male or female in, in a sense before Christ uh, in, in the presence of God. Oh, we don't stop being male or female. And again, there is only those two genders. Um, so we don't deny our heritage. We don't deny our history. But before the cross, we can all come alongside together as fellow believers in, the, in, in Christ. And all of this, uh, since we are in verse 18, Look at how Paul brings the whole of the Godhead, the Trinity, into this, the whole purpose of the Godhead uh, to bear here. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are at work in this. This united will to bring us together, to redeem us, and to make us one people for himself. It is not just the will of the Father. It is not just the will of the Son. It is the will of the, tr the, the triune Godhead at work. But that is not the end of it, is it? That's the summary of last week. That is not the end of it. What Christ came and did on the cross is not the end of it. Because what we continue to read is that he, does, he goes further. He not only makes a way of access, uh, he not only lays out before us the path of reconciliation to God and to one another in him, but in fact, as verse 17 says, Jesus Christ himself sees to it that we enter into that way. Look at how Paul says in verse 17 there, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far, uh, far off and to those who were near. Christ himself sees to it that his accomplished work in Calvary's tree is put to fruition, is applied in the lives of the Gentiles in Ephesus. Paul says that Christ himself also came and proclaimed to them what he had done. That Christ himself also came and showed them the way and led them uh, and guided them in that way. And we need to pause here, don't we? Because when did Christ go to Ephesus? That's the question. When, when is it that Christ went to Ephesus? Because you read the Gospels and Christ never went uh, from the Gospel record uh, outside of the, of the land of Israel, of the land uh, where he was born. We wonder then, when is it that Christ went to Ephesus? When did he go there if he himself never went outside of Israel? And the answer is as much shocking as it is insightful and, and a, a teachable uh, moment for us. Christ went to Ephesus, not in his bodily, uh, physical form, Christ went to Ephesus when the apostles and other disciples and preachers went. Christ preached to the Ephesians when the, the apostle Paul and other preachers preached to them the word of God. And that's very much insightful. 
There is a lot of implied meaning in this. The implications of this verse alone are too many for us to even begin to unpack this morning. But it is the truth that we see in Scripture, that we are the body of Christ. In fact, that's the book of Acts, isn't it? The book of Acts uh, begins by saying uh, all these things that Christ did, and then he ascended. But, but the idea is that Christ continued to work, this time not, not in his physical body, but through his mystical, spiritual body, which is the church. When Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the, the, the church, Christ himself comes and says, why are you persecuting me? Because the church is Christ's body, mystical, in the world. That's very much the idea. In, in, the same thing with, with uh, them having to wait for the spirit of Christ to come and descend upon them in, in, at Pentecost. They needed Christ, to, the spirit of Christ, to indwell them, to empower them, and to enable them to be his witnesses. And the implications are many, but I'll mention just a couple. First of all, this theology of the body of Christ, that we are the body of Christ, that we are the arms, the hands, the feet, the voice of Christ in this world, should fill us with holy zeal, with a desire to honor Christ in our lives. Because it's more than just our lives that we are living. We are living embodiments of the purpose of Christ in the world both as a congregation, especially as a congregation, but individually as well. We should extend the same love to others that Christ had. There is this once, uh, in one sense, uh, that we sometimes we, we deem people worthy of receiving the message, oh, well, this person is not ready to receive, or this person is not, uh, is not really a person who would want to hear the gospel. And then you look at the life of Christ and you realize that he gave the, the, the gospel to all, that he preached it to all. Same thing with the, with the, the, the kind of people we pray for. We all pray for the expansion, the growth of this congregation. I long for days when, when I would see uh, all these chairs filled up. But sometimes what we pray for kind of betrays us, doesn't it? What is the kind of ideal church member that we pray for? It's the, uh, the married couple, maybe two, three kids, life sorted out, uh, no emotional baggage, very much ready and willing to serve. Those are the kind of people that we uh, pray for or do we long for to see in church. Doesn't that betray the, the sentiment of Christ, the love of Christ for, the, for the, the riffraff of society that we were? Were we that? Aren't we as well in, in these sense building middle walls of separation and of division kind of genre of music? But there is this American Christian band um, and they have this song, and I think they, they capture the, 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 the sentiment and the urgency of acting and being the body of Christ. And, and the chorus goes something like this. If we are the body, why aren't his uh, arms reaching? If we are the body, why aren't his hands healing? If we are the body, why aren't his words teaching? Well, if we are the body, why aren't his feet going? And telling others, that, and showing others that there is a way. The sobering reality the of the fact that we are the body of Christ is one that is practical and experimental. It is a doctrine, it is a theology, but it is practical. 
the way we act should be Christ-like. If we are idle in our Christianity individually, if we are idle in our witness as a congregation, it is the body of Christ that is idle, and that is dishonoring for Christ. But there is a second implication in this verse, one that is perhaps even more relevant this morning, one that is particularly relevant this morning as we sit under the ministry of God's word. Paul says that Christ came and preached for the, to the Ephesians, and we understand that Christ came and preached to the Ephesians as he, Paul, and other preachers came and preached the gospel. That means that as we sit under the ministry of the word, any given Lord's Day, inasmuch as the, Lord, the, words God, the word of God is correctly expounded, we are sitting under the voice of Christ. Do you, do you understand that? Do you see the relevance and the importance of that? You're sitting under the ministry, not of, uh, of the pastor, of a preacher. If he is expounding the word of God correctly, it is the voice of Christ that is speaking. This morning, in this place, inasmuch as I preach faithfully from Scripture, inasmuch as God is speaking to you in your own situation, it is the voice of Christ. Paul himself, he says it in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he preached, uh, he is an ambassador of Christ, as though God himself were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, the, the preacher is not here to speak of himself or to speak of his uh, fancies. As he is preaching the word of God, he is an ambassador, he is an, a herald, like the heralds that we see in the movies, uh, in old days, they would go from town to town with a, with a, with a scroll and read, here he, here he, thus says the king, his highness the king, and they would read the, the, the proclamation of the king. That is very much what the preacher does. Hear he, hear he, what the Lord has to say. We proclaim this gospel, and it is in the name of, of Christ that we call sinners to repentance. There's another passage that speaks kind of like this. In Romans uh, chapter 10, where Paul is uh, speaking about the, the gospel, he says, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they call on him in Christ whom they have not believed? And how shall they, shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear him without a preacher? The implication is clear. In the preaching of God's word, inasmuch as it is faithful and as, as it is spirit-empowered, inasmuch as God is pleased to work through it, of course, God himself is preaching. Christ himself is being heard. The voice of Christ in the preaching of God's word is not a light thing, is it? Because then you think, as God is speaking, how often my mind is going elsewhere. How often before I come into the presence of God to hear the voice of Christ, my, my actions at home or on the way here are, are, are completely uh, unholy. You want the spirit to move here. And yet you watch filth and you, you, you entertain uh, sinful thoughts just before. Brethren, this, this puts pressure on me as a preacher 
to know this. But he puts pressure on all of us as hearers to make sure that we come ready to hear the word of God and that we are here to hear the word of God. What a terrible thought, what a tragic thing for a Christian, a true Christian, to forego, to neglect the ordinary means of grace, the, play, the one place uh, in, in, in the week where he can come into the presence of God to hear God's word. And in, the, in our case, both uh, services, twice on the Lord's Day. How tragic it is that a Christian who says with his mouth that he, that, that so-called Christian, that says with his mouth that he follows Christ, that he seeks to serve and obey him, he neglects the time where he can come and listen to his voice and to receive instruction from him. That's why it is important for us to be here Sunday after sun Sunday, if, pro if possible, here in God's house, in, the, in our churches. Because if you're, say, you're a Christian and you have shown no uh, desire to hear God's word, what does that say about your Christianity? It is a serious thing for us to be ready to hear with, with a, a prepared ear, to be here as much with our, uh, with our minds and with our hearts as we are with our bodies as well. So that's the first thing that we uh, consider here. And in fact, this kind of fits together with the, the last four verses as well. That the church is the body of Christ. And in the, the last four verses that we'll consider from verse 19 to verse 22, Paul gives us three more pictures of what the church is. And all these pictures, they are metaphors, they are uh, given to us by way of analogy so that we can understand uh, in a fuller, richer way what, what Christ has made us to be so that we can remember his mercy and the riches, that it, the unspeakable riches that he has given us, the glorious inheritance of the saints in him. So in the last four verses, Paul gives us three more pictures, three more illustrations, and I'll go quickly through them um, here. Firstly, he says there, doesn't he, in verse 19, and, and there's the, that connective again, now therefore, again, when you see a therefore, you need to ask why it's therefore. In light of these things that Paul has just written, in the light of these things that we have just uh, had read in our ears, now therefore, Paul says, remember that you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So what Paul paints a picture here for us is that now we are the one nation. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners. You're no longer immigrants. You are fellow citizens with the saints. The significance here is that in Old Testament Israel, in the ethnic Israel that was God's chosen nation in the Old Covenant, they, excuse me, they, they made this distinction. You could come into the Jewish religion, you could become a proselyte, you could become first a God-fearer, and you had to abide by certain commandments, but you could even go as far as becoming a, a proselyte, a Jew, after you've been circumcised and followed the whole of the, the law. But truly, really, 
you were still a second-class citizen. You would, you would still be a stranger, a proselyte. You would never be embraced and be given the full rights of citizenship. But now, in Christ, Paul says that we are made all to be a nation. You know, the, the reality is that ethnic Israel, because of their rejection of the Messiah... They themselves were rejected as a nation. These are not my words. This is not some kind of uh, uh, theology that is picked and chosen here and there and, and implied as something. It's the words of Christ himself. Therefore, I say to you, Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, as they were rejecting the Messiah, as they were rejecting him, the Christ, he says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits, the fruits of it. The nation of Israel, the ethnic Israel, was rejected was taken away the privilege of being a nation. And an, another nation was formed, a nation that includes both Jew and Gentile, that Peter speaks of as being the chosen generation, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, his own special people, he says. And, and, and the, the significance of this is, is breathtaking. You come to the book of Acts, which is very much the, the beginning of the church age, and you find all kinds of, of examples of how this is happening. You find, for instance, the nations being brought together at Pentecost with all the significance of Pentecost. You remember that it was because of sin that the nations were divided into languages, into different uh, idioms and different languages. And there at Pentecost, as the Spirit descends, all people hear uh, in their own tongue. It's as if it's reversing the, the, the consequence of the sin of Babel there in, in, in Acts. In Acts, you find that nations are brought together. In quick succession, in Acts 8, 9, and 10, you have the, the three sons of, of Noah, uh, Shem, uh, Japheth, and, um, Shem, Japheth, and Ham, uh, being descendants of these three sons of Noah, being uh, brought into the kingdom of God. So with, with Ham, you have the, eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. He is a, the Ethiopia was a, one of the nations that came out of Ham. In Acts 9, you have Saul of Tarsus, a descendant of Shem. And in Acts uh, 10, you have Cornelius, a descendant, uh, a Gentile, a descendant of uh, Japheth. You see the, the, the significance of this is that sin has brought the division of the nation. Sin has brought uh, all of this division between uh, peoples. But now in Christ, all of it is reconciled. All of it is brought together. So, that, so much so that now those in Christ are no longer foreigners, are no longer uh, immigrants or strangers. They are one holy Nation. No longer is God's kingdom identified by, by your, your, your ethnicity, by your um, uh, family line, by your genealogy. No, now the, the, the family of God, the nation of God, this, this, that is, is international, interracial, multicultural. I know these are all words that nowadays are used by, by progressive liberals and we tend to, uh, to steer away from them. 
But if there is one interracial, international, multicultural uh, institution and body in the world, it is the church. It is the kingdom of God which cannot be shaken. So God, in Christ, has made us a, a nation, has brought us near into the nation. And secondly, there in the second part of verse 19, we read that God has made us, or talks about a family. God has made us members of the household of God. Through faith, now in Christ, Paul says, we have been joined into the household of God. God has become our father, and we have become brethren to one another. And that is the significance here. Paul highlights the fact that we are members in the household of God. In this case, not so much to emphasize and to highlight that we have God as our father. He's done that already. But to emphasize that we have one another as our, brethren, as our brothers and sisters, as our brethren. He's not emphasizing the fatherhood of God. He ends up emphasizing the brotherhood of the, the spiritual family. And he says, no matter what nationality, no matter what your social, financial situation, no matter how uh, your, your studies and your academic achievements, no matter what, where you stand in the social ladder, no matter any of it, you're all one household with God, in God, in, in this family. We are all brothers and sisters. Just as much as we are fellow citizens with the saints, we're brothers and sisters to one another. We are one in Christ. We have the same spirit. We are, are saved by the same blood. And the application of this is, is, is a challenge to all of us. Some of you are parents. I am a, a father. And I'll tell you, one of the things that makes me sad, one of the things that makes me the most sad in, in, in my family is when uh, my two eldest uh, don't get along with one another. And they're bickering and they're, and they're getting upset. And it breaks my heart. Because I don't want to see my family disunited and, and, and uh, pulling against one another from one another. I want to see them united, defending itself, them, uh, uh, living in love and unity. And that's the application for us as a church. If we are a family and if we want to please our Heavenly Father... How is it that we do that if not by loving one another, by bearing with one another, by supporting one another, by forgiving one another? All those one another's in scripture. That Christ says, this, in this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How is it that God will be pleased if all we do in church life is bicker and, 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 and uh, attribute uh, ill intent and, and be unwilling to forgive. It is one of the most beautiful things, brothers and sisters, when you see two brothers who have uh, long been estranged forgive one another and be reconciled with one another, as we've seen recently, as we've seen recently in our own situation. This, this alone, this truth alone, that we are the household of God, should be enough for us to forgive to love, to, to bear with one another. It should be enough for us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed them, us as well for the glory of God. Because there is absolutely nothing. I, 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 this is not me saying it. Uh, I'm sure someone else said it. But 
It is said there is nothing that adorns the gospel more beautifully, that makes the gospel beautiful, than uh, a loving church where members love one another. In fact, again, the words of Christ, by this, they will know you are my disciples. He didn't say, you will know that they're my disciples if you have the right eschatology. He didn't say, you will know that you're my disciples if you have the, this practice, that practice, and that thing. They will know you're my disciple if you sing this way or sing that way or use this Bible or that translation. They will know you're my disciples for your love for one another. And that's very much the summary of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? It's about love. The first table, love God. The second table, love your neighbor. That is the summary. And that is the emphasis of being one household. And thirdly and lastly, not only we've been made a God's kingdom, a nation, a holy nation, not only we've been welcomed to this divine family, this household of God, but there in verse 20 to 22, we read, most significantly, we are made a holy sanctuary, a holy temple. Christians, citizens of the kingdom, children in his household, and living stones in the temple that God is building. Again, interestingly, in scripture, you find references uh, that individual Christians are the temple of God. Paul speaks of this especially in light with uh, immoral sexual sin. He says, do, do you not know that you're the temple of God? In scripture as well, you find reference to, to the church, the local church, like we are here, as the temple of God. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the local congregation, the Corinthian church is called the temple of God as a local body. But here in Ephesians 2 verse 21, it's, the universal church, uh, the, the Catholic uh, church, small c, by the way, the Catholic church that is in view. It's the church in its tran uh, trans-historical uh, capacity from, from beginning till now. It's the church in its transgenerational capacity. Every generation, we are all the temple of God that is being built up for God's holy habitation. And the significance of this in, in terms of Old Testament theology is, is, is clear. What was the temple in the Old Testament, if not the dwelling place of God? As they come out of, of Egypt in the book of Exodus, God gives them the, the instructions for the tabernacle, this holy of holies place in the side where the ark is, where the commandments are, where the manna, the bread is. And this place is the special dwelling place of God. It is the physical locality where God is most specially and operationally present. And here in the New Testament, that figure now is fulfilled not all, no longer in a geographical sense, but in a local, uh, in, a, in a worldwide sense, wherever the church is, there the temple of God is. There the holy of holies is, the inner sanctum, the, the place of, of, of God's own special presence is no longer somewhere in the Middle East, in Jerusalem, or uh, in, uh, in Shalom, or in the tabernacle, or in the temple built by Solomon, or in Herod's temple. No longer that is the case. The glory that was removed, the Shekinah that, that was taken away uh, because of Israel's sin, now comes 
and dwells in the church. Well, now comes and dwells in Christ, as it says in John uh, chapter 1. It is the glory of God taking on human flesh. It is Christ, the glory of God. And now because we are in Christ and we're indwelled by his spirit, we have the Shekinah glory. We are being fitted together to be that holy temple. This is astounding. And it's, it continues, Paul says, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. He says that everything hinges, everything uh, is founded and, and built from the fact that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Yes, it is him that holds everything together and everyone together. With him we remain united. When we abandon him, when we uh, neglect him, when we have our attentions drawn by other silly things in the church's life that removes the attention and the focus from the person and the work of Christ, that's when the trouble begins and that's when the foundation is no longer present and that's when the building starts to crumble. If we separate the, the person of Christ from the church, the church no longer is. He is the cornerstone. Without the cornerstone, I, I'm not a big building kind of person, but as far as I understand it, if you take away a cornerstone from a building, the building just collapses. Am I right? The, people who, the building is held together. It's built from there up, and, and it begins to sink, or it begins to sag, or it begins to, 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 to tumble. And that's very much the present tragedy, isn't it, of our day? The church in the West... The church in developed uh, first world nations. We've started to abandon Christ. Some of them have fully abandoned Christ. We've started to replace Christ with all manner of silly little things. And then you look at the church and the church is no longer a church. It is a community club. It is a, a, a place where people gather together. But there is no glue to hold them together. When you remove or tamper with the building's foundation you tamper with the, the building's reliability you're risking it falling or eventually given enough time it will fall and when you tamper with the person and work of Christ in the church the same thing is true and isn't that how we see churches uh, become liberal where was the first place of attack that uh, liberal theology uh, came when liberal theology came where was the first uh, point of attack it was on the atonement of Christ that's where they started attacking it was on the resurrection of Christ you destroy the foundation you destroy the whole building Satan is very smart and he knows what he's doing but finally no, not finally but just in conclusion as we are God's temple look at how Paul expresses his expresses it there we're being fitted together built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets jesus christ himself being the cornerstone again this reminds us that the foundation is revealed truth it's the bible it's the apostles and the prophets here the prophets are the new testament ones but i'll we'll talk about this at a later point um, it is built on revealed truth not on our fancies and now being built uh, being fitted together we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What this tells us is that there is a continued work. There is a continued work 
quantitatively. We want to see the, the temple grow quantitatively. We want to see the local church uh, grow. We want to see more people being brought in to know and to, and to trust in Christ as their savior. But so often that is a, a, a red herring because that's not in our hands to control, is it? We're good Calvinists. God alone knows when, uh, and God alone does that work. But the, the, the sentiment here is not just the quantitatively, it is the qualitatively, the quality of the building. We're being fitted together, growing into a holy temple. Are we growing into a holy temple? Individually, are we pursuing holiness without which no one will see God? Do we love holiness? Do we fight to mortify sins in our, uh, in our members? Be killing sin, as John Owen says, our sin will be killing you. Are we making that effort? Are we working out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us both to do and to will? Are we making ourselves individually more pleasing to be inhabited by the Spirit? Or are we, as Paul will later say in this same letter, grieving the Holy Spirit by our sinful actions, behaviors, thoughts, words, and deeds? Our pride, our resentment, our bitterness, our unloving attitude towards one another as a congregation. Are we building this holy temple that is beautiful and pleasing to the Lord? Because of its love for one another, for God, and for, the, for the, the lost. Or are we becoming a bitter wall, middle wall building kind of congregation that seeks to, to divide and seeks to work against what Christ has come to destroy? That's the question for us as we come to this, to this passage. Not to think ourselves as finished products, qualitatively. I know none of us thinks ourselves as finished products uh, quantitatively. We all long for more. But not to think ourselves as finished products in our lives, in, our, in the things that are very much within our God-given control to seek holiness, but to see ourselves as something of an unfinished product that will remain unfinished until heaven, that is true, but then nonetheless needs to be worked at, growing more and more until it becomes what it, it is supposed to be for God's glory and according to his purpose. We're living stones, Paul says. We're living stones. The, the temple in the days of the Old Testament was the presence, the place of the presence of God. But that temple made by human hands now is obsolete. Now the temple where the presence of God is, is each one of us. It's not these four walls. That's why I so much disdain that when people say, oh, uh, can you go to this, into the sanctuary uh, and get something for me? This is not a sanctuary. Well, now it is because there's a lot of saints here. But this is not a, this room is not is just a room it's a hall it's not a sanctuary unless we're here because we're saints but now that temple that was made by human hands is destroyed and it is the spiritual temple which is the mystical body of christ 
And that's what God is seeking, to have his spirit where his spirit would indwell in regenerated believers like we are. So brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us. May the Lord help us to be a zealous, holy body, a holy, mystical body, to be a, a reconciled uh, nation, to be a united divine family, and to be a glorifying spiritual temple in our lives, in our local church, for Christ's glory. Amen.